Father, we are very indeed thankful for this greatest gift that you have given to us, your Son, our Savior. We pray that though this Christmas season has slowly devolved across time and in culture to something secular that forgets Jesus, we pray that as your people that we would not, that we would be able to take time to increasingly love and appreciate the beautiful gift of your Son to remedy the ugly sickness of our sin. We pray, Father, that as we contrast who you are and who we were apart from you, that you will cause a deeper love and affection for Jesus to well up within us that we might live in ways that magnify His glory. And that He might be honored all the days of our life. We pray, Father, that as we look to Your Word, which teaches us all about Him, that You would humble our hearts, that You would quiet our minds, help us to hear Your voice through Your Word this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 90 this morning. Psalm 90. When I was much, much younger than I am today... And if I was at my grandma's house, during the week at a certain time in the afternoon, I would hear the television somberly declare these words, like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Those of you that are not laughing and don't know what that is, those are the opening words to a soap opera called The Days of Our Lives. And uh, though I can remember a few faces of the actors, I know nothing about the storylines or the characters because uh, I was more interested in uh, G.I. Joes or comic books at that age, and they probably weren't all that memorable to begin with. But those words have stuck with me all the days of my life up until today, and their truthfulness has been brought home to me again and again and again. Very often, if I look at Facebook, one of the first things that I'm hit with is the section called Memories, and it's things that you have posted on that day in past years. And there's often reminders of uh, events uh, at church life or in in our our life with our kids or mission trips, Uh, and particularly when you're thinking about pictures of your kids. Just this last week, a picture of uh, Rebecca holding Ellie, when she was first born, came out back from 2011 at a church Christmas party. And you're thinking, oh man, they're so cute. And you think, man, that does not seem like that was that long ago. That seems like maybe a couple of years ago, those memories. But, but it's been much, much longer than that. The days, the hours seem to be slipping like sands through an hourglass. And then what do you do with that thought? Well, this past Monday, even as I was preparing for a sermon that thinks about these things, Melinda and I attended her great uncle's funeral, and these words came back to my mind. The words of this psalm came back to my mind. Melinda's great uncle was a faithful believer, and 
Uh, it was a wonderful testimony to the power of the gospel in his life and his relationships and how he served at work and in church. But as I'm sitting in this funeral service, it is not hard to begin thinking about what people might say at my funeral service. If I were to not make it into 2024, what are some of the things that my friends would say? What would be some of the things that the people at this church would say? What's more, what would God say at the close of my life? Perhaps like you, as a believer, I have long desired that when the final grains of sand drop to the hourglass of my life and I stand before God, I will hear Him say the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, Well done, good and faithful servant. But that doesn't just happen. That's not just something that you fall into. It's not just something that is guaranteed. I have to ask myself, what should my life look like in order to hear those words? And how will I be motivated then to consistently live that kind of life to be able to hear those words? And this is where Psalm 90 is helpful to us because Psalm 90 gives us the answers to those kinds of questions. This morning, Psalm 90 helps us to think about the brevity of our life and how we ought to respond with an eye towards God. So, so as we stand to hear Psalm 90 read, let's hear what God would say to us from His Word about these things this morning. Follow along as I read Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening. It fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us for, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. You may be seated. We're told that this psalm is written by Moses, the man of God. And apart from this psalm and what we read in Exodus 15, which we see another psalm written by Moses celebrating God's power over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. This is the only psalm that we have by Moses, and it's not here by accident. 
These words open book four of the Psalms. And if you remember way back when we looked at Psalm 1, we talked about how the Psalter, the whole book, is not just some mishmash. Uh, it's not just something that, that showed up over time, but rather had a, a, a final former. Someone who took all of these Psalms that were collected in Israel and put them together in a very intentional and well-crafted way. Such that as we read through the Psalms, we see the story of Israel play out, in, play out in light of God's faithful character and unfolding promises. So book one opens with an emphasis on David as an anticipation of the ideal king, the Messiah. Book two, though, is about the rise of Solomon and the waning of David. David, who no longer resembles the ideal king. We see him repent from a heinous sin in Psalm 51. And the book ends with him frail and elderly and weak on his deathbed, crying out to God for help. Book 3 then focuses on the exile. The kings of Israel see the fruit of their lack of faith and their poor leadership. Israel's sins flourishing. And there are loud cries of, why, O God? And how long, O God, will you be gone from us? As the covenant promises seem like they are being threatened to fail. There is no Davidic king on the throne. And Israel is no longer in the promised land. Book 4 now encourages Israel to meditate on the law and consider their ways. They are the ones who have put themselves in this situation. They have been a part of God's covenant promises, they have received His covenant law, and they have rejected it. And therefore, they ought to return to God. They ought to return to the means that He has prescribed in the law and experience again His covenant love and anticipate the day when the true Davidic King, the long-promised Messiah, will come and lead them in a new exodus, not merely out of a foreign land, but out of sin and into righteousness. So it's no surprise that a psalm of Moses, the lawgiver, opens book four, which is all about the law. But again, the, the, the book, and in this psalm in particular, is not just saying keep the law. That's not the point. Rather, right in the middle of this psalm is the central application of all of book four, and it is this, number your days so that you will get a heart of wisdom. That's our goal this morning, to learn that every day matters and to better know how to make them count in light of who God is. And how does Moses help us get started? Well, by directing our thoughts to God himself. Specifically, he leads us to praise him. So if you're taking notes, this is what we see in verses 1 through 2, that we ought to praise the everlasting God. Praise the everlasting God. Properly speaking, verses 1 and 2 is a doxology, a statement of praise and adoration. Doxologies are there not merely to instruct us about God, but to elicit a response to God. What does Moses say? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses highlights that God has been both their sovereign and their shelter. That he is Lord over their lives and he is their dwelling place. He has been a refuge for his people where they will find comfort and security regardless of what is happening in the circumstances of their lives. Think about how, again, the, the book has been crafted and how this is designed to be an encouragement to those people that are either in exile or just returning from exile. 
Perhaps they're in a foreign land under a pagan authority or recently returned like Ezra and Nehemiah trying to rebuild the nation. Either way, there would have been uh, very much a temptation to feel a kind of rootlessness that, that, that our parents were booted out of the land and though we're ethnically Gentile, we've tried to, to, to follow the law and still worship God. We're suffering from this judgment and now we're back and how are we to feel about these things? So, so the psalmist wisely puts this psalm here that Moses wrote to say, remember, remember, God has been the refuge for His people in all generations. In all generations. And you're no different. The, the, the extraordinary judgment that Israel has experienced in recent days may make you feel like somehow you're different. But he is saying, look to God. Look to God, the refuge from all generations. Says, Even before the mountains were created, long and long after this world is gone, from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. God doesn't take a vacation. And he doesn't pass off His responsibilities to somebody else. He is always there for His people. And how, how amazingly comforting is that to us even today? So much of life is just running around. Things changing on us unexpectedly, plans falling apart, political power shifts, wars begin without notice, death and destruction seem everywhere, and yet there is one constant in the midst of all that. Someone who never changes, who never sleeps, who never slumbers, who is always a ready refuge for his people, God. Many years ago, Isaac Watts turned these verses into a hymn, and as you hear the lyrics, you'll notice the pastor's heart wedded to the poet's pen. He's highlighting the effect that these verses and its truth should have on us. He writes, and, and we might sing, O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Under the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure, Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, for everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. That's something you can build your life on. Those truths give us the ability to have stability. In difficult times. Again and again, when we turn to the Lord, He is there as our refuge to strengthen our souls and encourage our hearts. So, how can we not praise Him for these things? How can we not turn to prayer and to, and to praise, adoring Him? And this idea of God being the Lord, our sovereign, and our shelter will actually bookend the end of this psalm as well. God, Moses will come back to this, but for now, for now, Moses has highlighted these things. So they will be a sharp contrast to what he says about humanity in the verses that follow. So even as we ought to praise God, we must also consider our weaknesses. We must consider our weaknesses. This is the second direction that we see from Psalm 90. We see this in verses 3 through 11. Consider our weakness. Well, what weakness is this? Well, it begins with our finitude. God may be from everlasting to everlasting, but we are not. And so the first thing that we see is that we have shortened lives. We have shortened lives. This is the first part of our weakness. In Genesis 3, Moses recorded God's words telling Adam that just as he was made from the dust of the earth, so one day he would return to it. By the way, isn't it, isn't it just an interesting thought 
uh, Moses being the author of the first five books of the Bible and this psalm. And within this psalm, he's referring back to something he already wrote. I, I just find that fascinating. Anyway, that, that's a freebie. Don't worry about that one. God told, God told Adam in Genesis 3, from dust you were made and from dust you return. And now in Psalm 90, Moses clearly has this in mind. And he says, listen, returning to dust is not just a way of life. God is the one who is doing it. Speaking to God in prayer, Moses says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years. Why does he say a thousand years, do you think? Well, once again, in a book that he already wrote called Genesis, we see that before the flood, there were a few people that almost made it to a thousand years of life. That's hard for us to fathom, and I think that we can probably... Uh, explain it a little bit scientifically, but again, we don't have time for that now. But the point is, a thousand years is basically the upper limit of human existence throughout human history. A few people in primeval history attained it, not many, but notice what, what he is saying here. Even the longest living person, just a blip, momentary blip, a flitter when it comes to God's eternality. For one who is everlasting, even a thousand years is like just a memory of another day or a short shift on a day of work. And so this is God's way toward humanity. He is the one who shortens our days, leaving them like fleeting whispers in the grand scheme of history. Verse 5 says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. Almost every morning when my alarm goes off or I hear the garbage trucks and I wake up, I almost always wake up in the middle of a dream. Matter of fact, I cannot remember the last time I did not wake up in the middle of a dream. Sometimes it's mundane, sometimes it's bizarre, sometimes it's intense. My mind spins up all kinds of things at night. But when I wake up, no matter how crazy or memorable that dream might be, if I were to explain it to you, if I don't intentionally think about it and rehearse the details in my mind, but by the time I'm brushing my teeth, it's gone. It's gone. I'm like, I, I dreamed something and it was crazy. And my wife was like, well, what's it about? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I just remember I woke up feeling really weird, but details are gone. And he says, that's like the human life few seconds of smoke after you've blown out a candle. It just doesn't last. That's the weakness of humanity. Now, Psalm 90 is not unique in this area. In fact, we, we heard uh, the Psalms read earlier. The, we, we recited them together. This theme shows up throughout the whole Bible that humanity's life is fleeting. James says it's like a, it's like a mist. It's like a vapor. It's there one minute and it's gone the next. And so we might rightly ask, but, but Why? Why is humanity so frail? Why are we so finite? Why are we so weak in our humanity? Why do we have to die? Moses reminds us that we live shortened lives because we live sinful lives. We live sinful lives. This is the second part as we think about our human weakness. We live sinful lives. We've already had this vanity-killing reminder that our days are few in this world. And now he says, for, here's the reason why this is true, for, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
verses 7 and 9, make sense in light of verse 8 in between. And verse 8, again, is referring back to Genesis 3. God has set our iniquities before him and brought our secret sins to light. This is why verses 7 and 9 are true, that we experience God's wrath. It's not merely poured out on our individual sins. Moses is thinking about that judgment that was issued on all humanity because of Adam and Eve's rebellion. There we read about our rebellion against God, our fall into sin, and the curse of death that is brought upon us as a result. Thus, our weakness of mortality comes directly from God's righteous judgment against our sinfulness. So Moses continues in verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. We have people these days that live into their 90s and sometimes past 100. Just saw a video this past week on uh, on, uh, on Facebook, a, a little reel, and it was a, a, a granddaughter filming her grandmother getting ready to turn 100. She says, you know, your birthday is coming up, you're going to be 100. And she was like, how old? She's like, what year is it? She goes, 2023. She goes, I was born in 23. I'm going to be 100. And she immediately said, oh God, don't play with me. Let me make it. Let me make it. But statistically, in this country, you're, you're, you're lucky to make it past 79. That's the average life expectancy. Not much has changed in Moses' day. And what are those days marked by? Toil and trouble. So, sometimes we can go through very difficult situations, and you notice how it feels like it is endless. Like, when will this trouble go away? And yet you get through it, and you look back, and say, so it's like, where did the time go? Somehow our life is both fleeting and constantly plagued by trouble from sin. All of this leads Moses to ask, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Not just who considers the power of your anger and who considers your wrath, but according to the fear of you. In other words, as we'll talk about more in a minute, the way that you understand it. Moses is asking, do we really grasp how offensive to God our sinfulness is. Do we really understand the fullness of his wrath that will one day be released? I mean, you think this world and our trouble is bad? There's much worse to come if we do not know God. Have we thought about God's wrath in connection to the brevity of our lives? This is, this is how Moses ends this section. He's, he's letting these things linger in our minds. He says, listen, we, can, we praise God rightly for His eternality. And as we, as we do that, we're forced to consider our inherent weakness as sinful, dying creatures. So then, what, so then what do we do? This is verse 12. So, Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so this leads to the third direction that we see for our lives in the psalm. Namely, we must number our days. Number our days. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to number our days? Well, I don't think Moses intends for us to keep some kind of running tally, like we're a prisoner in an old, in an old uh, prison etching each day into uh, the concrete walls of our cell. No, I think he envisions us 
responding to the weaknesses of humanity in light of God's eternality, not by shunning them, but by meditating on them. Not by saying, la, 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 I don't want to think about that, I don't want to think about that. No, 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 no. He says, think about it. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Learn to number your days. And part of the reason why I think that is because there is a long history within not only the Bible, but Christianity of this contemplation of the fleeting days of our life and the unstoppable, ever-approaching reality of death that all of us will face. It's rooted, of course, in passages like this and others throughout the Bible, which speak not only of the fall and death as a consequence, but also death as an inevitable enemy that is coming to take all of us. Over time, this call to number our days was summarized in a Latin phrase, memento mori, which means remember death, or less literally, but with the intended application, remember, you will die. Remember, you will die. So medieval scholars would get a human skull. I'm thinking, how, where, you know, how do they get these things, right? Uh, I mean, somebody died, maybe they didn't know who it was, maybe it was a poor person, I don't know. But they would take real human skulls, and they would uh, let them soak in something to clean everything off, and then they would stick the thing on their desk next to the candle where they would work. Or they would stick it on their, on their the, the shelf of library books, and it was a way for them to be constantly reminded of their mortality. Later in the 1400s, artists would create these large murals, these, these massive paintings. They would feature, feature all kinds of people from, from everyday life, kings and bishops and common workers, children and, and sick people on crutches. And in between each of them would be a skeleton. And they would either be walking together or more often than not, dancing together. They would call that the dance of death. The point was, it doesn't matter your station in life. It doesn't matter how much authority you have or how much wealth you have. All of us are one day going to embrace death. Even the Puritans, at least the ones that eventually settled in this country, would put skull imagery, skull and crossbones, skull with wings on their tombstones. Have you ever wondered why so many churches used to have cemeteries next to the buildings where they would worship? We're probably tempted to think, well, that was convenience, right? You would have the service in the meeting house, and then you would just move the body next door and drop it in the ground, right? No, it wasn't for convenience. It was for momentum mori. Every time there was a funeral, it was a reminder of the congregation, this is the way of all men. It was a reminder to the community, this is the way of all men. Are you ready? Are you ready? And more importantly, are you living your life? Psalm 90 and, and a great history of tradition that flows out of many other passages in the Bible is telling us, remember death. But that's hard for us today, isn't it? I mean, it's hard for us until we get sick. But even then, we live in the age of penicillin. Stuff that would kill people in previous generations, we get a, we get a shot and bed rest and it's like, you're good to go. We don't really hang around farms, so we don't really think about where our food comes from. We're not, we're not there on slaughter day. We show, roll up to Kroger and we buy a bag of chicken breast shrink-wrapped for us, ready to go, right? But we, we are very removed from death. We live in an age where people are somehow more consumed with the idea of longevity through, through extraordinary fitness and, and all, all kinds of diets and, and eating ideas, and yet they also at the same time don't ever want to think about death. 
It's very difficult for us to think about that. And some people have created some interesting modern ways. There used to be a, a Twitter account, and uh, it had a little emoji of death, skull, scythe, and at just every day it would tweet out, remember one day you'll die. Remember. So you follow that thing, and you're scrolling through Twitter, you're liable to hit that tweet, and you get this memento mori for the day. Remember you will die. The ironic thing is, that guy stopped tweeting about six months ago, or gal. Did they themselves come to an end of their life? Death comes for us all. So rather than trying hard not to think about it, not to worry about it, the Bible says, no, embrace it. Think about it. Reckon with your mortality. Remember that you will die. Why? Not because we want to be morbid, right? Not because we want to be dour and just walking around and be like an Eeyore all the time, right? Man, I just had this great thing. I got this promotion. Yeah, but remember you're going to die. Like that, no, that's not, that's not the point. That's not the point. He says, number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is that heart which understands what it means to live in light of the fear of the Lord. Remember he said, just in verse 11, he says, Who understands your wrath and your judgment in a way that is in keeping with the fear of you? Remember the Bible, when it speaks about the fear of the Lord, it's not about cowering in fright, thinking, man, if I do something wrong, he's going to blast me. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna send a lightning bolt and I'm done. No, 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 no. It's not that kind of fear. It's the, it's the kind of fear if you're, ever, if you're ever up north at some point and you're out in a large field or a snowy plain and it's late at night and suddenly the northern lights set the sky on fire. And you just kind of stand back and take it all in and feel how small you are and how glorious this thing that God has put in the sky and you feel so small and you can't help but stand back in awe and just say, look how beautiful that thing is. So also, it is with the fear of the Lord. And you understand the immense beauty and glory of the one who made us and saved us. The one who pours out grace upon grace upon us. You cannot help but be humbled and stand back in awe and want to worship him. That is the fear of the Lord. And so by counting our days, we gain a heart that is driven by the wisdom of fearing the Lord that allows us to walk wisely in this world. Remember, for God's people, we don't fear death. Don't, don't misunderstand. This idea of counting our days, of being aware of the fact that we're going to die, that's not because we're afraid of death. No, it's just that we know that it's coming, and so we want to make sure that our lives count, that we don't waste the time that God has given to us. I believe Pastor Dan prayed that every day is a gift. It would make me really, really frustrated. I gave my kids a really expensive gift in a couple of weeks. And I saw it on the floor of their room, walked on a few times a couple days later. That's where parents should be saying amen, right? How about God? Every morning we wake up and we take that first breath and that has come from him. It has not been him. It means it's a day where he has not said to us, return, O oh man, to the dust. No, he's given us life. What, what, what are we doing with that? That's why we want this heart of wisdom. That's why we're seeking to count our days because the heart of wisdom helps us to shift our priorities towards kingdom things and away from our current culture of endless frivolity. 
A heart of wisdom guides us in living for God, making the most of our days because they're shorter than we think. It reminds us that every day matters. Every day matters. And notice this wisdom doesn't just happen because we hang out in graveyards or keep skulls around the house. Moses says, teach us to number our days. It's a prayer. Lord, teach us to number our days. We need God's help to do this. We need God's help to best number our days, to take stock of who we are as frail, weak, and limited creatures living in light of His eternality. And then from that awareness and the heart of wisdom that flows from it, we realize that we need help even living out the instructions that this wise heart is saying to us. And so this leads to the final verses where Moses directs us to pray for God's grace. To pray for God's grace. As Moses is writing this psalm, praising God and reflecting on humanity, it leads him to the central application. We must learn to count our days. That heart of wisdom that comes from that is not enough, though. That, that tells us that we know, now we know what we ought to do, but we still need God's help to actually do it. And so towards, toward that end, Moses gives us these three directions on how to pray for God's grace in our lives as individuals and as a corporate body of His people. First, we should pray that we would be sustained by God's mercy. That we would be sustained by God's mercy. Remember the context of the psalm? Moses is leading Israel, and during this time, they are marked by faithlessness, grumbling, disobedience. In fact, just, just over a month after they entered into covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai and said, whatever you command us, we'll do, they broke the covenant. And they made a false god to worship, an idol. The one who compiled the Psalter now has placed this psalm to address the fact that Israel, by and large, listen, there was always the faithful remnant, there were always some true believers, but by and large, they never really got much better than that event at Mount Sinai. Their repeated breaking of the covenant, their repeated going after false gods, resulted in their exile from the land. That exile was a sign of God's judgment upon them. It was a cutting off of their experience of covenant blessings. It was a picture of their impending death from sin. So Moses prays, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Moses is praying maybe sometime in the book of Numbers, and he's pleading with the Lord to have pity, to show mercy to Israel and to return to them again, to make his presence known among them again. And notice that now, now that word Lord is in all capitals. Before he's, he's addressing God with a title, our Lord, our Sovereign, our King. Now he's calling out with the covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord. He's appealing to God as the covenant-keeping God, asking how long will you stay away? How long will you deny us your covenant-keeping love and mercy? Moses knew that Israel needs to experience the reconciliation that comes only from God's mercy towards sinners. Because they need his presence to continue. And the psalmist who put it here for those returning from exile knows the same thing. The people, the need is perennial. We need God to sustain us in our walk with him. We need him to take mercy on us and continually make his presence known. So even today, if you claim the name of Christ, if you are one of his followers and you have wandered away from a heart of wisdom into a heart of foolishness, 
If you find yourself having not numbered your days, wasting away what God has given you, spending it only on yourself and on the things of his kingdom, then call out for mercy. Ask the Lord to return, to have fellowship with you, to make his presence known that you might be sustained and walking out and living out his ways. More than that, more than that, pray, pray to be satisfied by God's love. Pray to be satisfied by God's love. Mike Bullmore says that verse 14 is one of the great summarizing verses of the Bible. Notice how back up in verses 4 and 5, the shortness of life was likened to the length of a day seen in the morning flourishing of grass, right? There's been some dew, the sun comes out, all of the grass kind of lifts up, it's reaching out for the sun as it were, I'll take some food, thank you very much, but then as the sun wanes, as nightfall happens, it's gone, right? Because, because there's not enough to, to, to sustain it. And what does he pray for Israel? Oh Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many days as we have seen evil. How do we stay flourished? How do we stay up and buoyant and encouraged and strong and stable like that morning grass? We are sustained from morning and on with the steadfast love of the Lord. That steadfast love is, again, his covenant love, his demonstrated commitment to his people. How far does God show that commitment? How long does it last? We've already been told, from everlasting to everlasting. You don't exhaust God's love for his people. And that is why only it can satisfy us. Only it is reliable and unbreakable, and we should pray, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Because everything else in this life is transient and fleeting. And so we pray, God, give us hearts of wisdom that lead us to walk in your ways by giving us something far more satisfying in this life. You, help us to be satisfied in you. Then and only then will we be glad as many days as we saw affliction. Only in God will our joy match and exceed our sorrow. And being taught to number our days, we walk in wisdom by praying for the Lord to sustain us, to satisfy us, and then finally we pray that we will serve by God's power that we will serve by God's power. In verse 13, Moses prayed that God would have pity on Israel for they were his servants. Then in verses 16 through 17, he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses knows the promises of God, even from those promises about the Messiah that were given to Abraham and his descendants. Now, what does he pray? God, keep your promises. More than that, let us see it. Let us be faithful so that you are establishing our work, and our work is that which is bringing about your plan for salvation history. When we serve, we serve not ourselves, we serve not our own legacy, but for God's glory alone as part of his purposes for the world. Let me tell you, that's actually very liberating. We're not, in some sense, I want people to be able to say nice things about me when I die, but ultimately it's not because, because of vanity, it's because I want God to be honored, right? That's very different than trying to manage a legacy for myself. So we ask God to establish the work that we are doing for Him, to reveal His power in us, so that we might be encouraged and persevere in serving Him, to see His priorities become our priorities, the kingdom might be advanced. 
Now, this is Moses' prayer, and if we know the Bible, we know he didn't see that, did he? He didn't see the answer to this prayer because he was not allowed to enter the promised land. You may be tempted to think that he prayed a prayer that God didn't answer for him. That he wasn't able to see the Lord establish the work of Israel's hands and pour out his favor so that David ascends the throne as established as the example of the coming messianic king. But Lincoln Duncan reminds us, don't, don't forget about Matthew 17. Remember what happens in Matthew 17? In that passage, Jesus takes a few of his disciples up on a mountain. And there for a few brief moments, he gives them a glimpse of his eternal glory. He pulls back the veil, as it were, and reveals he's not merely a man, but he is God in the flesh. They see his glorious power, not in action, but in a person. They will come to realize that they are seeing more of who Jesus truly is, the perfect Savior who represents God to man and man to God, the one who bore the fullness of God's wrath in our place, even death itself, so that he might atone for our sins and conquer death for us. He was the one who was raised back to life and was restored to the fullness of his divine glory at the Father's right hand. And who else was with the disciples on that mountain? Moses. Moses. After 1,500 years, God in his steadfast love answered Moses' prayer by allowing him to see the fulfillment of his promises, his saving promises to his people Israel. And today we stand on the other side of the cross. We have the witness of the apostles in Scripture. We have 2,000 years of Christian teaching all pointing us to Jesus We just have to ask, are we looking to him? Are we seeking to see him? Are we looking to him in faith? Are we trusting him to be our dwelling place? Are we we relying on him alone to be the Savior who brings us to God? Because there is no other. In the second century, the Christian author Tertullian wrote a book defending the Christian faith against its critics in his day. And in one of the sections, he's talking about the need for humility. He says, listen, this is not just an emphasis in the Bible, that we are humble and therefore need God. He says, we see this even in Roman culture. And he describes a victorious general general returning from battle. But instead of wearing his victory crown, he says there is someone else, a servant behind him, merely holding it up above his head. And as he is coming back and the crowds are cheering and welcoming him and saying, victory, 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 this servant holding the crown is whispering in his ear, look after yourself. Remember you're a man. Remember you will die. Look after yourself. Remember you're a man. Remember you will die. In other words, This victory doesn't mean nearly as much as you think it does. But for the Christian now, as we step back and think about God's eternal glory, even our shortened sinful lives, allow us and motivate us to call out to the Lord and ask Him to teach us to number our days, to help us gain a heart of wisdom that understands how to prioritize God and His ways in this dying world so that we can make the most of our time in this world, not for us, not for our own victory, but for His glory as part of His victory over sin, bringing people out of darkness into His glorious light.
And so let us pray that for ourselves. And in doing so, let us look to Jesus, who is the one who saves us from God's wrath and gives us hope of the resurrection so that death is an enemy that's coming for all of us, but he's a defeated enemy that we need not fear. Look to Jesus, the source of sustaining mercy, satisfying love, and power for service. Father, we are so thankful for your son. We are so thankful that as we as we are confronted with our frailty, with our limits, Father, we don't need to fear these things. We don't need to be afraid of what is to come if we have faith in Christ. Because he has accomplished everything that we need to not only give us purpose to our days in this life, but to bring us into your glorious presence in the life to come. To unite us sinners in making us saints in himself. And so, Father, we pray that we would heed this consistent theme that is throughout the scriptures that Moses so well summarized for us that we would number our days to gain a heart of wisdom. God, help us to do that. But, but not, not, in, not in a vain way, not in a way that seeks to number our days so that we can do something for ourselves. No, God, help us to do so in a Christ-centered way. To number our days that we might live for your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, for those that might be visiting with us this morning and they've, they've never looked to Jesus in faith. They've never looked to him and found in Him a Savior who brings them out of the pit of their sin and sets their foot on the strong, rocky foundation that is Christ. We pray, Father, that You would open their eyes to see Jesus' beauty, even as we thought about Him this morning. That You would help them to feel the weight of their sinful lives, dread Your wrath that is coming, and find in Jesus a refuge for their souls. That they might repent and believe in Him. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.